substitution. Too many men on the field. Saskatchewan. Gizmo has a block in the sideline. He has not stepped out. He may go all the way. He needs one block and he'll do it easily. Promise mess I wouldn't do this. McDavid stops up. What a move. Shoots. Scores. The Outsiders brought to you by the Macintosh Group at Remax River City. It's podcast number 57. Bryn Griffiths along with Robin Brownlee. How are you doing today? I am outstanding. Best day of my life. Looking forward to this one today because we're going to be chatting with the third most winning coach in National Hockey League history, Ken Hitchcock. Think he'll have a few stories to tell. <laughs> well, yes, he will. And if he doesn't, we will. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, and our roots all go back deep to the Western Hockey League. But we'll uh, we'll chat with Hitch coming up in a little bit. It's um, like I said, there's a lot of ground to cover. But he's uh, the last time I saw a picture of him, I think he's looking great. Yeah. So he that's is. wonderful. So and I'm sure he's got a big smile on his face. We'll get to that coming up in a little bit. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about the NHL playoffs. Edmonton Oilers, as we tape this, one point away from clinching a playoff spot. So now we're going to have a two-week gap here. They're going to do it. You know that. It's probably done by the time somebody downloads this show anyway. But now now the coaches have a bit of a, it's a little dilemma. It's a nice dilemma to have, but everybody's going to be watching Connor McDavid. Can he get to 100 points? The question is, are they, we're going to see the Oilers rolling over four lines? Are we going to see his time cut back? How are they going to handle that? Well, you know, I suspect we will see uh, McDavid, uh, if not for all uh, seven games remaining, uh, certainly for five or six of them. You know, the 100 points in 56 games is, uh, you know, that's the buzz with the fans. Can he do it? Can he do it? It would be a great feat. And, you know, Connor's not going to jump up and down and say, well, that's that's really important to me. But you can bet uh, it's a nice milestone to hit in 56. The things uh, for the team, though, which he always, you know, you ask him about the 100. They did it just the other night, and he always puts it on the back burner, which you expect. You know, can he get rest? Can he and Lee and Dreisaitl still say, stay sharp by playing uh, but maybe have their minutes pulled back a little bit. I suspect Dave Tippett doesn't need any advice from us on that, that he's smart enough to know not to ride the big horses too hard down the stretch. They are, uh, you know, they're going to get that point they need. They've got five games against the Canucks, and let's face it, the Canucks aren't playing for much, and they're in a tough spot. So they're going to pick up points against the Canucks, I, I think McDavid has a shot, even if they cut back his minutes, to get to 100. But more important, that they open the playoffs. And the only question, I don't even think it's a question, it'll be the Winnipeg Jets, if you ask me. Uh, how fresh are, are, are those big guns when that starts? Another thing that I'll be watching carefully is what does Dave Tippett do with his net minding? Because Mike Smith has been sensational. But really, when you take a look at the Koskinen numbers, He's been pretty solid down the stretch here, too. And I, I keep going back to 2006. The Edmonton Oilers were doing a race to the playoffs. And Dwayne Rollison got them in, I think, on the second last game. 
and he was rolling big time into that series against Detroit. And even when he played poorly and might have got yanked out of there in the third period by Craig McTavish, who was back at the bench coaching at the time, you'd keep asking Mac T, how are you going to handle your coaches? He says, well, I'm going to come back in with Roley every single time. Never until the injury, obviously, in the Stanley Cup final. But one thing, Mac, I still remember him telling me, and it might have been in Carolina, talking about how you really got to be careful how you deal with your netminders in the playoffs. In other words, if you're going to pull a guy, you got to show him the faith going back in for the next game. If he gives you two bad games in a row, then it's a lot easier to make a change. Now, with the Oilers situation, and, and to follow that up, when I was working in Calgary at Sportsnet 960, the fan, Peter Marr and I had a chance once, and only because Peter knew Scotty Bowman, and I had a chance to kind of be the third wheel in a conversation. And we were talking about goaltending and platooning and how, how he saw it. And he said, look, the, the biggest thing as a coach is to give direction, but to stay out of the way. Don't become too much of a sideshow. So he said he was really careful with his netminders as well. So if Scotty Bowman's going to say that, it just adds a little more credibility to obviously what Mac T told me in 2006. And now here we're, I, I don't think we'll have time to ask Hitch that question. Maybe we might, we'll see coming up in a few minutes, but I'll be watching really carefully to see how Tippett platoons his netminders over the next two weeks. Well, you touched on it. Koskinen was very good after Mike Smith came back from injury. Yeah. It was when he had to force feed him into the net for those first dozen games. Koskinen has shown time and time again, he's not one of those rare goaltenders and there's not many anymore that can take that kind of workload. Uh, when Dave Tippett didn't have an option and he had to put Koskinen in every night, uh, he struggled. He, he's shown he can't do it. Uh, but can he play some? Yes. Mike Smith is the number one guy at this point. Does Koskinen get a couple games? I would imagine so. I mean, Mike Smith is like Superman if you're a middle-aged guy. I mean, he's 39 years old. And um, he's in terrific shape. He can handle the workload, but I still think it's smart to rest him. So seven games left. I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, Koskinen get a couple of them. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they throw a curveball and we see Alex Daylock as well for, for maybe a game. You never know. You touched on it briefly. We talked about Connor McDavid. He is an Art Ross gimme. Austin Matthews right now for the Rocket Richard is a gimme. He's just been on fire. It's been a pleasure to watch him. Man, he can fire the puck. The question is, between those two guys and anybody else, who do you, who do you see for the heart? And it's really hard to, to talk about that one because, I and honestly, I haven't watched enough of the teams in the U.S. on a regular basis to be able to say, well, that guy obviously is going to stand out. But here in Canada, to me, it's, uh, it's Matthews and McDavid for the art uh, for the heart trophy but as for the other two trophies those two guys are just running away with it ah uh, i tell you what bryn and maybe you just said the order that way it is mcdavid alone mcdavid playing secretariat at the belmont <laughs> with the rest of the field 31 lengths back uh if Connor McDavid isn't unanimous in terms of first votes, to me, there's something wrong. 
Austin Matthews has had a terrific season. He's going to get the rocket for sure. Connor McDavid could sit down right now and comfortably win the Art Ross Trophy as the scoring champion. Sure. There's no longer what I consider the dodge because it's been used differently depending on the year. And I know we get paranoid about the Eastern media. Well, you have to be in the playoffs. Well, the Oilers are firmly in the playoffs. It's Connor McDavid in a landslide. If it's not, I'm really looking forward to seeing the ballots, which are now posted because he is head and shoulders this season, not because he's an oiler, not because we're fanboys. He is head and shoulders, the best player in the league. And that's what now, it's about. But when you talk about unanimous votes, are these guys going to get enough U.S. votes? Because are the U.S. guys falling into the same trap we are where we're not really paying a lot of attention to what's going on down south? How much attention are those guys paying on what's happening up north? And we keep hearing everybody slamming the northern division for being weak, and I don't see it that way. I think it's, that not, it's not. I, I, don't, I don't see it that way at all. I think the, fu- the funny thing for me, until Ottawa lost – so the Montreal Canadiens on the weekend in overtime, they'd lost 27 games. So they'd lost one third of their games to the Edmonton Oilers, which yeah. really has pushed the Oilers into a comfortable position rather than a crazy position in the final two weeks. But I don't see the North as being that weak. Statistically, it's not. People said that. Uh, I was reading some stuff the other day. I can't even attribute it to the proper people, so I won't try It's just not so. And, you know, the Edmonton Oilers don't make the playoffs without Connor McDavid, period. As good as Mike Smith has been, as good as Leon Dreisaitl has been, and I don't, I'm not one of those people, oh, Dreisaitl, he rides the coattails of Connor McDavid. No. Does he benefit? Yes. Darnell Nurse and uh, Tyson Berry have been terrific. But all that said, the Oilers are not a playoff team without Connor McDavid. Uh, you need to give the guy his due. And um, I think that happens this year. You know what? If, if, if Matthews peels off one or two or even a handful of first place votes, I can understand it not going to jump up and down. But if you put on a blindfold and you look at the numbers and you don't get into well, it's Toronto, well, it's this team. It's Connor McDavid. It's just not close. Okay. Hey, uh, before we wrap up this uh, podcast, too, I want to talk about golf. I want to talk about Mike Weir. We'll, we'll get to that toward the back end because I want to get into the, the hitch conversation here pretty quick. We do have to I just take a real deep breath to get into this. Uh, we do have to tell you that we are brought to you by the McIntosh Group at REMAX River City, chatting with Brent last week. Took a bit of a week off to kind of chill out. And there's a reason for that. The The real estate market in the Edmonton area has been crazy this year. And it's because of ridiculously low interest rates. They're still that way. So it's keeping everybody busy, busy, busy. Great time to trade your current home for a larger one. Great time to buy, sell. If you'd like some more information on doing that here in the Edmonton market, then give Brent or any of his team members a call. They'd be happy to help you. And it's real simple to find them. The phone number, 780-464-0075 or at McIntosh Group. 
Ca. So that's MacintoshGroup.ca. Now, don't let, if you're thinking about it, don't let the market pass you by. Now is the time for, as I said, for both buyers and sellers. So give them a shout. They'd love to hear from you. Okay. Ken Hitchcock is up next. Looking forward to this. Hitch, this is long overdue, and we've been saying that a lot about guests that we've had on our podcast lately. It is great to see you. You're looking like a million bucks. You're in Palm Springs, right? Yes. Yeah, I have a Brent. I have a home in Palm Springs and a home in Kelowna. So I, you know, I get I get get back to Canada. I probably split six months each place, but uh, and then I get into Edmonton once or twice a summer to visit friends and stuff like that and old teammates. There seems to be a thread there too. Is there a, a lot of golf along with the coaching stuff? And I know you're still really active. We'll get into that in a minute. But what about golf? How's your golf game? Uh, you know what? I would say humbling. Um, I'm, I'm probably a six back in Canada and I'm a 12 here. The golf course I'm a member at called the Palms is probably the toughest track here in the, in the Coachella Valley. And uh, it's, a, it's a player's tournament course and it, it beats me up, especially the back nine. And, and for us to play, like if you play from whites in Canada or in a lot of public golf courses, you're playing at 6,000, 6,100. Here it's 65 to 66, so it's a long golf course. Wow. Wow. I tell you what, Bryn, I was giving Hitch a hard time the other day. Hockey coach, you know, the winter sport, the Canadian sport. Here he's bailed out to Palm Springs and then splits his other <laughs> part of the year in Kelowna. He's like, what is he, standing on the first tee with Cam Cole in uh, Kelowna talking about the good old days? Hitch, uh, tell us what you're doing now, Uh you spent a whole career where it took you uh, many years to get back to Edmonton, where I'm sure you long wanted to coach. Your time here was relatively quick, but you're not gone. You're still in the mix. Tell us what you're doing. Uh, Robin, I, I spend uh, a lot of time with the American League coaching staff. Uh, I, I, I talk to or, or we text pretty much every day with Woody and his, and his staff. I, I'm, I stay in touch with the practice plans. I watch the team play. I, I really focus on the, the systems part of the game with Bakersfield. Um, and I, I, I stay out of the personnel side. They've got people involved in that. Keith is down there. So I stay out of personnel side and, and mostly stay on team stuff. Uh, I, I've worked periodically with Brad Lauer and his staff, and I've really enjoyed that. Lauer does a great job, and he's got a great staff there. And then with Kenny, um, I, I, I work, we kind of talk every day or every second day by text or briefly, and we just stay in touch with, uh, I keep them in touch on the trends going on in the league. And, uh, because I watch a lot of hockey at night, I try to watch two games and tape one game a night and then take notes on the first two games and then do the note taking in the morning on the third game. Uh, but I stay in touch with Kenny on personnel side of things free agency and stuff like that. So I'm active on a lot of fronts. Um, uh, I, like I said to Bryn before, I, I, I stay in touch with a lot of coaches in a lot of leagues and uh, I'm kind of a resource for them and I really enjoy that. And then I've, uh, 
I'm working with uh, some people in uh, in the U.S. military. Uh, it's kind of stopped with COVID a little bit, but uh, I've, I've done some work with uh, some of these guys in helping on job relocation for some of the uh, military people. How did you get started in that? Uh, you remember Bobby Gassoff? Oh, yeah. Um, Bobby Gassoff Jr. lived in St. Louis, and... Um, he, he brought out people on job relocation, all SEALs, uh, whether it's SEAL Team Sixers or just part of the SEAL Brigade. Uh, and so I stayed in touch with some of those guys, and I stayed in touch with some new guys in Dallas on just trying to help guys. Um, uh, and, and I mostly worked through a couple of guys in Texas, uh, just helping guys get ideas on what they can do job-wise. And, and I talked to the guys in Texas on on how they can speak on the, on the SEALs behalf and stuff like that. So I've enjoyed, uh, it's, it's not an official role, but I've enjoyed talking to those guys and staying in touch with them. Hitch, tell us more about uh, your involvement with, with uh, uh, different coaches. I know you're big on webinars. You're always into what's going on, into feedback, uh, into exchanging ideas um, your arm's length from behind the bench now, like you said, but it seems to me you're still heavily involved in the uh, art of coaching. Yeah, I am, Robin. I'm, I, I really take pride in staying connected. I'm always going to be a coach. It's always going to be there. The daily grind uh, uh, is something I wanted to walk away from. I didn't want to get into that. And, and not so much, not so much the, the action. I love the action. I love coaching. It's the hours. I wanted to get away from the hours. And, and like I said to people, have time for a second cup of coffee. But I get a lot of calls and I've made myself available to friends or friends of friends uh, or guys that know that through the NHL Coaches Association, that if they feel things are slipping, they can give me a call and uh, and I'll try to help them. And I, I stay in constant touch with probably eight or 10 NHL guys. Um, on a weekly basis. And then I've got college guys, NC2A guys, uh, CIAU guys. Uh, Mike Babcock was down here for a couple of months and we did a lot of brainstorming on what he's going to do at the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, I've talked to Ian Hervers a few times. So I stay in touch with those guys and I stay in touch. Uh, and it helps me because I've got to go back and look at the team's game. Uh, I got to go back and look at some of the clips that they send me and and figure out what's there. And I really enjoyed kind of, I, I use the term coaching coaches and, and I really, really enjoyed that. Let, let's go way back here a little bit. I, I was lucky enough in 83 to get my broadcast career started by doing play-by-play -play for the U of A Golden Bears. That meant that on those long bus trips back from Saskatoon or Calgary or wherever, I had the pleasure of talking to Claire Drake continually on those buses. I learned so much in one year, I can't even begin to tell you and Billy Moores was there as well. Now you tell 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 everybody a little bit about the the Claire Drake uh, influence on what you've been doing. Well, I was lucky enough. The Sporting Goods Store United Cycle I worked at was a five minute drive from from the U of A. So I I went at least twice a week and sometimes three times a week to watch the Bears practice. And then Bill and Billy and Claire let me into their world. So I would. If our midget team wasn't practicing or playing on the Friday or Saturday, I would go to the games and then I'd go down and sit with Billy and Claire after the game, stuff like that. And they let me into their world and they shared it with me. 
So I felt when I was coaching midget hockey at that time, Bryn, I was way, way ahead of everybody. I was way ahead of everybody because I, I, I had a clear understanding of the systematic approach to hockey. And Claire, Claire was on the cutting edge of technical advancement in hockey and systematic play. Uh, the pressure game had changed. So all of a sudden, the style that the Oilers played when they won their cups, that really started with the U of A Bears. And, and Claire had a systematic pressure game that I was really in, enhanced with and I wanted to learn everything about it. And, and uh, so I, I spent a lot of time, and even during the summer, I would uh, at least go to two presentations that Claire made. I would find out where he was presenting. And you had Dave King, George Kingston, Claire Drake, um, Wayne Fleming, um, uh, Dr. Bob Hindmarch. Those guys were presenting during the summer, and I would go at least to, to a couple of those symposiums to try to even get further advanced. It, it almost seems unfair if you're coaching the chain in Sherwood Park and you're picking the brains of the list of coaches you just named, how is anybody else supposed to have a chance, Hitch? Or were there other coaching guys out there who were sponges for the same information you were getting? You know, Robin, the, I, I was technically advanced for that league, but what I learned coaching midget hockey was as much as you know, technically, your job as a coach, the best coaches in the world inspire people. And I coached against people like Dave Manning, uh, people who was in Red Deer at that time, um, uh, Jimmy Jost, whose grandson plays in Colorado, in, in Fort Saskatchewan. I coached against guys that knew how to inspire players. And they taught me as much as anybody in learning that part of coaching because um, the, the, the games were intense, the games were passionate, and you knew every, every game, if you weren't 100% ready, you were gonna get beat. And I learned a lot from those guys. I didn't learn technical stuff, but I learned how to uh, help the players invest in, in playing for each other. And I, I learned that coaching midget hockey. Hey, and your midget record, by the way, 575 wins, 69 losses. Wow. <laughs> That's very impressive. You ever look back at that? When, when we, when I, when I coached in Short Park, I had over a hundred players try out for us every year. Hockey had, hockey, hockey had boomed in Short Park. Uh, they had, they had a, a midget A team, which was us, which is now AAA. They had two midget B teams. And then we had six house league teams. So I could draw from anybody. I found Ian Herbers as a 15-year-old playing house league hockey, and we convinced him to come and try out for us uh, because he didn't really have enough confidence that he thought he could play at a higher level. We convinced him. But he was, he was in the lowest tier playing Bantam House at that time, and, and, uh, or, and, and we convinced him that he could play on our team. And so I had a lot of options open to me in Sherwood Park, and we were – we were the show there. We were where every kid wanted to play for the, for the midget 18, the, the Alberta chain game. Now this whole coaching gig, as far as I understand, if you're always learning, there's always a progression. You dominate with the chain. You take your handwritten 
resume on full scap or whatever it was out to Kamloops uh, to take that next step. You've got all this information, not that you'd stopped learning, but you've got a, a, a bunch of information already. What's the next transition as a coach when you get to that major junior level? What, what, how did you change as a coach during your years in the loops? Robin, I, I, went, to, I went on a learning exped, ex, ex, expedition because I felt like I owed that to the players because I didn't have the playing knowledge. I stopped playing at juvenile um, and I didn't have the playing. I didn't play junior hockey. I never played pro. I felt I had to be, I don't want to say the smartest guy in the room, but I had to have the most knowledge. So I went on and I tried to gain as much knowledge as I can from everybody, from every aspect of coaching and all kinds of different sports, hoping that I could help the players. And I felt like I owed that to the players because I lacked the actual playing expertise. And I was able to, when I first went to Kamloops, that 84 team was so experienced and had so many great character people, they helped me become a good coach because I learned more from them than they ever did from me. And that, that team set me up for a long, long run because they were cooperative. Uh, they were helpful. Uh, they, they were guys that were really passionate about winning. And I learned a lot from them, a lot more from them than they did from me. Did you, with all that talent that you had in Kamloops, and you also played in the barn that was really intimidating when teams would come in there, did you change your game a, a little bit or the way you coached the game because of the arena? And It just seemed to me like you guys were unbeatable talent-wise and it, nobody wanted to play in there. It's, it's, like, it's like, well, I... In Moose Jaw, we didn't have the same talent level you did. We had some great talent, but nobody really wanted to play at the Moose Jaw Civic Center either. But did you change your style a little bit? And I, I might even go back to Dallas. Nobody wanted to go into reunion either. So were you able to take some of those factors and put it all together? You know what, Bryn? Uh, that's, a, that's a really good question because I, I took a system and when I, I, I right away in junior, I played the same system as the Bears. And when I went to Kamloops, we played the same system as the Bears, which is what the Oilers played, which was a 2-1-2, full pinch, uh, kind of like a full court press system. 2-1-2 in, in the neutral zone, 2-1-2 in the offensive zone, full pinch by the defenseman. Um, very, very aggressive system. I did the same thing in Kalamazoo with great success. And then all of a sudden I went to Dallas and – the personnel didn't fit the system, and I had to change. And what saved my coaching career in the NHL, when I first went to Dallas in January of 96, I brought that system with me, and it didn't work. And I, Rick Wilson and Doug Jarvis convinced me to change. And we, we had adapted the Montreal Canadiens system of counterattack, of patient forechecking, because we didn't have foot speed uh, throughout our lineup, but we had a lot of smarts. And I changed the system of play for the first time since 1973. And that was in 96, 96, 97 season. That's when I changed. And I stayed on that system of play uh, pretty much really until the end of my career in, in coaching in the NHL. But I had to adapt. Yeah. And, and Rick Doug and I spent the summer together on how to learn how to 
what we call death by a thousand cuts, uh, be a bear, more patient team, uh, better counterattack team. And I got to understand that odd man rushes came from turnovers in the neutral zone. And Rick and Doug taught me how to, how to make a team great in the neutral zone. And that's how you played winning hockey in the NHL. If you look at six of the last seven teams that won the Stanley Cup, six of the last seven have been number one in the neutral zone with, it, with and without the puck. That's where you win championships. And that's what they taught me. That was the Montreal Canadiens way. And that's, that's where they taught me that. I heard you reference um, Rob Brown as, as somebody who had an impact on how you tailored your approach or as a, as a good lesson in, in coaching. Now, a lot of people will know Rob Brown had 212 points for you one year. That helps a coach about as much as anything. But there was more to coaching uh, a guy like Brownie and more to adapting to individual players as opposed to cookie cutter for everybody. Uh, talk a little bit about that because you carried that on to pro as well. Well, Brownie and, and Greg Hoggood in, in some venue uh, taught me more about coaching than coaching players than anybody. And Brownie used to drive me crazy because he, he was a carefree player with unbelievable vision and skill. And he used to drive me crazy because we couldn't fit him into the box. And then one of the players came up to me halfway through my, my year with Brownie and he said, Hitch, I don't know why this guy bothers you because he doesn't bother us. And if he doesn't bother us, he shouldn't bother you. And, and then the guy said to me, why don't you, why don't you work on his strengths? He did, that's all he said. Why don't you just work on his strengths? And what I learned from coaching Rob Brown, which helped me a lot with other high profile players, especially guys like Medano and Zuboff, and in some cases working with Leon, was that don't take away from what they do well because the things they don't do well bother you. The things that they don't do well take time, months, years. And you can't focus on that because what they do well will stop doing. And that's what I learned by coaching guys like Brownie and Hoggy, is that they taught me a lot on how to work with high-profile, high-impact players. And it really helped me in, in, in working with guys, like, especially with Medano and Zuboff, because um, I used that approach for my whole career. I, I gave a, I, I understood the a player's weaknesses, but I didn't want to take away from their strengths. And I focused on their strengths and got to compete level what they did well really at the high level and then looked at what they didn't do well as a long-term project. When you made the jump from the Western league and, and you worked your way up uh, into the NHL, who uh, we, we were talking about Philadelphia, for example, I, I remember Russ Farwell was there, but who, who kind of helped you open that door a little bit? Russ did. He Ru was the Russ, guy. Okay. Uh, Russ called me the day we got back from Memorial cup in 1990 Russ called me and said, uh, Hitch, I'm going to take the job in Philadelphia. I want you to come. I don't know where you're going to be organizationally wise. Uh, Homer wants two coaches. We need a coach in Hershey. Uh, Mike Ease is here. We're not sure what we're going to do, but we want you part of the organization. So I went to Philadelphia knowing that I had a job, but I didn't know where I had a job. And then after talking with Homer and Craig Hartsburg, uh, we decided that I would stay on as an assistant coach 
in Philadelphia rather than take the head job in Hershey. And it was an eye-opening experience for me. Um, and it was, it was three years of unbelievable lessons. You remember at that time, my last year was the year that we traded for Eric Lindros. And uh, we had finished my second year there uh, really strong. We really had a good team and we really finished strong. But then we gave up the team, uh, the core part of that team to get Eric, which, you know, ended up being great for the franchise. But it was the whole aspect of, of all of a sudden money and, and pro high profile players and media and living in Philadelphia was a real eye opener for me. And it, looking back on it, it really helped me. The other thing, I had gone uh, 18 years just expecting to win every night, 18 years, 12 years in midget, six in, in junior. And then all of a sudden we had a really average or below average team. And it was a real eye opener for me um, to see the different attitude that was taking place uh, in the NHL. It was more about survival if you were just hanging on. And, and that was a real eye opener for me. And I was lucky that I got the job in Kalamazoo I got that job because of a guy, you know, Les Jackson and Les, Les knew me from the Western Hockey League. And he got, he got Bob Ganey to, to, to interview me and then eventually hired me to go to Kalamazoo. And it was going to Kalamazoo was a professional break in my life. Coaching out of the spectrum again, too, huh? You love those uh, little barns, those little band boxes, those little intimidating places or uh, it's that were fun to go into but not to watch your team play. You must've loved it. I, I love it. We, we, we didn't have a team built for the spectrum, but the atmosphere was incredible. Yeah. But you know, the best for me is I got, I got to coach against players that, that were so incredible. First of all, Mark Howe was with us and I would spend most of the home games because I didn't go home. in after the pregame skate, I got to spend, two years in a row there with Gordy. Gordy would come and watch Mark play during the winter. And, um, and Gordy would just stay at the rink and, and him and I would hang out for a couple of years, which was fascinating. And the other thing is I got to see Mario Lemieux in his prime. And I've never seen anything like that in my life. It's a lot like Connor is now where there's not much you can do. You're not going to stop him. You maybe can contain him for a little bit, but you're hoping. And that's the way it was like, like Mario Connor has so much Mario in him uh, where it's just a, a, when he's determined, it's an unstoppable force. And I, I got to see Mario when he was really, really rolling. It's the, uh, the connection given your, your uh, roots here, uh, the, all those Edmonton Dallas series, it was, seemed like every year and your first, in in '97, you're you're behind the bench, and here comes Toddy Marchant, and it doesn't end like you wanted it to end. And I I still remember that Glenn Sather fist pump in the in the press box. And then after that, it was Edmonton Dallas, Edmonton Dallas. Uh, you got the better of them uh, after that. Was there any added? I don't say motivation, but did it make you smile when you look back on it that? You weren't coaching in Edmonton. You found your place in Dallas. 
and you were beating the Oilers all those years right in your hometown. How did that feel? What was that dynamic for you? Well, it, what taught me was when you play against a team like the Edmonton Oilers or you play against a team in a Canadian city, you better come to a very clear understanding early in your coaching career that you're not just playing the team, you're playing the whole city. And if you don't understand that, you're going to get overwhelmed. And that's what I learned in Edmonton is that there's a there's not just the push from the team and the players and the coaches. There's a whole community push. It means that much to the community. And you have to understand that going in. It needs to mean more to our community than it does to the Edmonton community. And we didn't understand that. We were a better team than Edmonton. We were deeper. But they played like it mattered life and death. And we had to understand that moving forward. It taught us, we played them, I think, three or four more times. It taught us huge lessons on it better mean this much to us if we expect to win, because this is how they're going to play. And even, even when we swept them or we won in five, the games were going into two and three and four overtimes. Like, and there was 100 hits per team. Like, it was just... It was barnyard rules, and and you better understand that if you blink, they're going to beat you. I, I'm going to blame a lot of this on you, but if you're your average Edmontonian and you told them to close your eyes and you played them the horn from the Chicago Stadium, they would smile. I don't think anybody in Edmonton hated the horn in Dallas, and I'm one of those guys. I can That horn, I still remember when I worked for the Oilers and – Doug Waite was in the locker room because he'd been beaten up so much by uh, Mr. Hatcher in front of the net. And the horn went off while we were in the medical room. And both of us looked at each other and said, that fucking horn? Can't stand it. Uh, so I'm blaming that on you a little bit. I, I still hear that horn now, and I just get that the, the creepies. Uh, so uh, congratulations on that. Well, I get the same blame for the cannon in Columbus. So <laughs> it's no different. So... Uh, they think I, I just told them where to go to buy it. I didn't go actually buy the cannon. <laughs> well, let's, let's get into that. Cause Robin and I were talking about this over a coffee before you came on. So tell us a little bit about the, that interest about the civil war stuff and how that got going with you. You know what? It started in 92 in Philadelphia when there was an all-star game and I, they were, we were out of the building for four days and one of the guys that was in charge of ticket sales there, Jack Betson, said, I asked him, I said, what's, what's to do here? He said, oh, you, here's my friend in Gettysburg. you got to go on the tour. It's fascinating. I didn't know anything about Civil War at that time. And his buddy happened to be a ranger. And he took me on a ranger's tour. I was there for two days. And I run into a bunch of people from Toronto who were reenactors. And they, they convinced me to to get into a regiment. I got into the regiment in Pennsylvania and then moved on to Michigan um, with Custer's regiment there. Um, and I just got fascinated with the history of, 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 of the Civil War. And then I got more fascinated on, on the team part of things, the group part of things, because it was, it was fun. You would, you're all in this atmosphere together. You'd, you would arrive to a reenactment on sometime on Thursday night and you'd be there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And, and you, it, it gave me a real feeling of team. And I really enjoyed that part. And I felt like I, I was on this huge learning curve about history. And, and not, just, not just 
military history, but the whole history of the United States, good and bad. Yeah. And also living history, you know, where you, where you, you lived in a tent, you bivouacked, you cooked your own food and I wasn't very good at it, but, but, uh, I, I enjoyed learning how to do things. And I, I learned a lot from those guys. And, and the best part for me was they didn't care what I did for a living. I was a grunt. I was a private. I was the first guy to get knocked down. That was good for them. So this was reenactments. Like, were you doing the uniforms and the muskets and the cannons uh, and the strategizing about flanking them over here and that over there? Was this the full meal deal? Oh, yeah. It's reenactment in word, in word only. It's, it's acting. And you're... You're in costume, you're in design, and when you when you go into when you go into the site, uh, you know, depending on like there's all kinds of reenactments through the United States, but when you go in there, you're expected to uh, to live the part. So you're you're part of the Living History Tour, uh, and and string bands and and uh, sutlers, um, dry goods, uh, hardtack and bacon, beans. Um, Open fire. Uh, best thing you could do for a mattress is branch browse. That's about it. And you're expected to to live that lifestyle for those for those days. And I, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I got too old to handle it after a while because it is physically demanding, and a lot of times it was pretty hot in the summer. But but I, I found those guys amazing. Some of those guys are still great friends, and I stay in touch with them. Uh, some of the guys that are reenactors and. And there's some guys that are reenactors that do it for a living. And I stay in touch with two or three of those guys also. Could, could the South have won if they had implemented a 2-1-2 defense? <laughs> they, had, they had no chance. The machinery of the North gave them no opportunity to win. It was just a matter of time. So um, so go ahead, Robin. I'll, I'll, I want to figure out how I want to word this next one, but go ahead. Well, I'll pass it to you because I'm going back into hockey just in case well, you that's what, that's what I was going to do too. So if you got one, go. Pitch, you mentioned, uh, you've mentioned three players in our time together this morning. Um, Eric Lindros, Mario Lemieux, Connor McDavid. You also mentioned Mike Medano, who's uh, – up in that elite core as well. Um, you had to learn how to handle elite guys and you don't get much more elite than the guys you've been talking about. Um, is it even fair to ask you who's the best player you've ever seen? Well, I, I yeah, I, I think it's, I, I've had so many good, great players, but for me, being able to coach, not so much seen, but being able to coach Connor's at one level. Leon's right up there. I think Leon's the best 200-foot player in the world right now. Um, uh, Medano changed and became a dominant player in both ends of the ring. Uh, and to me, the guy, Zub Sergei Zuboff, was yeah. at a cut above everybody. And I tell people this story. Sergei, he had no ACL at the end of his career in the NHL. And to show you how good he was, on one leg, he went back to the KHL and won Defenseman of the Year twice on one leg. That's how smart and how good he was. He made plays with the puck that every night you would just shake your head. Like, how did he see that guy? 
He passed it through three sets of legs. Did he actually see the stick over there? And in most cases, the answer was yes. And to me, from a vision standpoint, he is just a special player, like a lot of the other guys. And I so admire Connor and Leon uh, because they both changed um, and, and they've become really complete players now and really dominant players in their own way. But it's fun to see young players like them who buy in so quickly to make adjustments in their, in their game. And it, it's really fun to see that happening. I, this is the question I was going to ask. I don't, and I don't know how fair it is, but correct me if you think I'm way out to lunch on it. I always expect that players are going to change under great coaches, but I always felt that coaches had a shelf life where the story, you can only go to players so long before maybe they tune out a little bit. Is it fair to, to look at it that way? Or can coaches change as dramatically as players can? Well, I don't think coaches change. When guys say, you know, like they said to me, geez, Hitch came back, he made adjustments. How did he do it? Um, coaches adjust. They don't change. We are who we are. But what changes is the delivery and the receiving of the message. Okay. And it, it, it's had to change dra- dramatically in the last three or four years here. And that the message taken, message received, um, has to change so that's what you adjust with but your personality is is not going to change no matter what bs they're selling you um but you can make adjustments on how to deal with players and i think that's the biggest change that a coach has to make now if you expect to survive in the league there's some defined areas that you're responsible for that have to adjust and have to change from what 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 was uh, recognized five years ago. Well, and, and you've you've lived and coached in the transition hitch. Uh, there was a time when the only reason uh, a coach gave a player for something he wanted was because I said so. Uh, and now they want to know why and how and what it means for them, what it means for the team. How did you make that transition? You're still you. But how do you deliver? How did you deliver the message differently? Well, what 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 really helped me because I was able to coach later in my life and still have success. I I learned over time that if you're going to push a player, the first thing you have to do. But look, our job is to get players into areas they can't get to for themselves. That's hard to do. And during that process, there's going to be conflict, and there's going to be you're not happy with them, they're not happy with you. And that's the growth part of things. We're pushing them through that brick wall and trying to help them through it. What I learned over time was um, when you started coaching, you told them what to do. Then you told them how to do it. And then the last part is the why, which is the most important part. And I learned over time to start with the why. And the why is this is, this is what's in it for you. This is where you can get to. But the other part, which is most important, which for all of us older coaches was missing is being able to explain that you're pushing them and you're demanding certain things because you believe in them. I think players buy in easier now, as long as they know that the coach believes in them and they don't mind being pushed and prodded as long as they know that that's there. Your job now as a coach is to explain that to them before you start to push. And that's hard for some guys to do. 
A lot of times they start the push and then try to do the explaining later. It doesn't work like that. You better be upfront with how much you believe in them, where you're going to take them, why you're doing it, and then start the push. Third most winning coach in the National Hockey League. Does this that sink in? Do you ever think about that and go, wow? Bryn, you know what I'm proud of? Looking back on it now, I'm proud that I survived. I'm proud that I wasn't three years and out, yeah. uh, that I survived. And that, you know, you look at all the coaches, we've all coached three, four, five teams. I, I'm really proud of the fact that I survived. I, I don't look at the record. I don't look at the rings. I don't look at the championships. I mean, I was lucky coaching four Olympics and stuff like that. I look at it that that in a dog-eat-dog world that the NHL is, uh, the most intense sporting uh, of the four major sports for me, um, I was able to survive and I was able to accomplish some good things, but survival's number one is that I was still relevant, uh, later in my life. And I'm, I'm really proud of that, but I got to tell you, I worked really hard to do that. I, I spent extra hours and a lot of personal time continuing to grow because I'll give you an example. When I went out after Dallas, I was out four months and there was four or five major changes in the NHL. If I hadn't kept current with that, when I got to Edmonton, I would have never figured out what was going on because systems had changed, stylings had changed, and I had to adapt right away. A lot of times a coach will be standing on a bench and you might have a minute or two before you win the Stanley Cup and you start thinking or have all these flashbacks about where you were and how you got to this point. For you, it was kind of sudden the way you guys won that cup. And uh, do you remember? Do you remember your initial thoughts when you realized that, hey, this is this is what I've been looking for. Well, that's the problem with us as coaches because I don't remember much about what we won. This is what I remember: is that we went into the locker room at one thirty a.m. and at quarter to six, the cleanup crew was there to clean the locker room and we all had to get on a flight and go home. We didn't want to leave the locker room. It was quarter to six in the morning. We didn't want to leave. That's the part I remember. But the next year I can remember every detail of that series and especially game six against New Jersey. Right. That's, that's, that's the negative part of being a coach. You remember in detail, the losses and you gloss over the wins and I've got a feeling from that win, and I'm proud of it, but the feeling is post-game. The part of the game, coaching, is a blur, but I can tell you every detail, especially in the overtimes in New Jersey, because that was heartbreaking for us. And it's the same feeling that I had with the Flyers in 2004, because we were the best team in the NHL, and we lost all our players on defense, where Sammy Kaplan had to go back and play. Yeah, I remember, I remember that series against. Uh, Tampa Bay like it was yesterday. And that's that's the negative part about coaching is you remember the losses way more than you do the wins. Well, you know, it's interesting, Hitch. You, you called it surviving. Uh, I'm thinking a 99 cup, a Jack Adams award. I think it's four medals, four gold medals with Canada at the Olympics and a whole bunch of other stuff. That's more than surviving. When do you get far enough away from it to go, 
pretty good run, Hitch. Pretty good run. Well, you you know what you're proud of is I go to the golf course every day here, and I either hit balls or I play. I probably hit more balls than I play, but they don't call me Hitch here. They just call me Coach. Every person that knows me at this golf course calls me Coach. I'm proud of that because in the United States, that's a badge of honor. That's that's respect, and I'm really proud of that part. And it's it's I don't like to live in the memories, and I I don't like to. I'm not one of those war story guys uh, because I feel like that's the private time that you had with your team. I don't like, uh, unless it's positive, talking about things that went on in the dressing room, unless it's really positive. I don't like talking about that. But I am really proud of the fact that they call me coach. And it was the same thing in Edmonton. I I said this to people before. I, I was there a year and it was a transitional time and I knew going in. I was trying to help some friends out, but I have never enjoyed a year in coaching much as I did in Edmonton because I learned for the first time in my life how what you thought was important in the community, how much more elevated and how much more impact you had in a city like Edmonton. And I, I, I am so happy that I got the chance to coach in Edmonton and still hang out with those guys now. I, I think it's fantastic. I almost want to end this right there, but I, I do want to quickly ask you about the Olympic experiences for you and how much that meant. It's one thing to be coaching for a city, but when you're coaching for your country, it's got to be a lot different. Brian, I've never felt more pressure in my life. I, I, I've never felt, uh, especially 2002 was a very unique setup because we were so banged up and going in and, and, you know, guys like Eiserman and Lemieux never played another game after that. Um, that was guts. Uh, that's a gutty veteran team, but I've never felt more stress and pressure uh, than I did in 2010. And all of us felt that and to win that way was incredible, but that win was like relief. That was relief. And in 2014, I know this is sounding cocky, but after the second game, I knew it was over. After the second game we played, and the reason, and I think the coaches felt like that too, we had a core bunch of players back from 2010, and they were selling the, play, the new players' systems, style of play. They had them over at the systems board where we had the technical part of the game. They were selling it for us, and the buy-in was was impeccable. And the buy-in was there right away from the day we arrived in Sochi. And after the second game, the way we were playing defensively and the way we were checking and committed to each other, I didn't feel like anybody was even going to come close to us. Gretz's little outburst in Salt Lake City, is too much made of that, or was that just – it makes a, makes you really smile when you think about the fact that we all knew Wayne was trying to take a little bit of the pressure off of you guys, but uh, was too much made of that? I, I, I think, first of all, we didn't know what was going on. We didn't, we didn't understand what was going on in Canada, the, the level of panic and concern. We were just trying to bring our team together. What, what impacted everything in, in Salt Lake City was um, a meeting that we had with, McGinnis, Eisenman, Lemieux, 
um, Brendan Shanahan, Rob Blake was in on it. And they said it had come after 9-11. So security was so tight, it took you an hour and a half to get to the ring to go have a half an hour practice. And the players came to us and said, listen, if you keep us away from the ice and just have us play the games and you tell us what to do, what to do and how to do it, we'll sell it to the rest of the group. We'll bring it to the rest of the group and we'll, we'll bring this thing together because we were stumbling. We had, we had uh, lost to Sweden big time 5-1. We had barely beat Germany. We were struggling. And that was after the German game that they said, if you keep us off the ice and we're allowed to rest, um, we, we'll sell it. And, and they sold it like crazy. And then we, the turnaround was we tied the checks 3-3, but we played great. And we could see it really building. And the players, we never had a hockey practice after that. We never went to the rink. We just stayed in the village and, uh, and rested. And the guys got, we got better and better as the tournament went on. Hitch, one last one for me, and we've touched on it already, but, you know, there's Stanley Cups and Jack Adams Awards and gold medals. And when we talk about somebody's uh, legacy, often it doesn't even involve those things. It involves uh, people. It took a long time for Claire Drake to get into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Too long to be honest, you had a part in that. And yet there's all these people, yourself, Billy Moores, that coaching tree goes forever and the roots go forever. To me, that's the true legacy. But how much does it mean to you that Claire finally got in? Oh, huge. I don't think people understood how much he changed the game. He brought a, he brought hockey from a passive uh, sport into a very aggressive sport as far as systems he and he and dave king they invented the systematic play that people still go to the clinics you get taught the same stuff 40 years later he he meant everything to all of us that wanted to become career coaches because we all came through the same learning curve if you sat and took a picture of a clinic in western canada you had in the in the seats watching and the presenters, you had Barry Trotz, you had Mike Babcock, you had Ken Hitchcock, you had all these people in there. And in Toronto, when when uh, when Tom Watt was teaching, when Mike Keenan was teaching, you had all that group of coaches there. Pete DeBoer was in on that. And and that tree, those guys gave us the opportunity. I never knew a thing about penalty killing, angle, stick positioning, pressure down all, you know, cutting off the, the, the quiet corners. I never knew any of that stuff until Claire taught us. And then all of us got on the same learning curve and it, it made us, uh, the reason we were so passionate about getting Claire in is that he impacted so many of us from a teaching base that we felt we owed it to him. And, and I think that's, that's my legacy. I, I want to stay strong with the coaches association, but my legacy is I, I get, real fulfillment out of teaching coaches and I love coaching coaches now and that's becoming my passion on a daily basis I think you're looking great by the way I, you look relaxed big smile on your face I know you're you're challenged daily you're able to get out and hit a bucket of balls whatever I think you're looking great I just wanted to pass that along Bryn I really appreciate that like I said 
I'm lucky. I, I, my goal is 12 months of the year. I, I want no more than 10 days. I got to wear long pants. That's it. <laughs> oh, that's the goal. That's why I live here. And that's why I live in Kelowna when it gets warmer. And uh, uh, I, I've got this, uh, I've got this thing that the only time I want to wear long pants is when I got to go watch the Oilers play when it opens up and I'm back in that. Thanks for your time on this. This has been great. Thanks a lot, guys. So there you go, Ken Hitchcock joining us, and we thank him for his time today. That was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Hey, before we go anywhere, Mike Weir, a big winner on the tour. Not the PGA Tour this past weekend, but his first, what do they call it? This is the Champions League, right? The Champions Tour, yes, indeed. There you go. So congratulations to Mike. How much does he pick up for that victory, by the way, his first, his first victory? Well, I tell you, Mike has not won in almost 14 years. He's 50 years old now, which is young for yeah. two guys like you and I. Yes. Uh, he picks up a handy $337,500 to push his winnings for the year as he approaches his semi-golden years to just over a million bucks. So, U.S. Yeah. So good for Mike Weir. And the fun part of that, Bryn, the guy he edged, John Daly. Oh, let's beautiful. talk about it. Let's talk about a time warp here. Hey, and two different guys, completely different in their approach. Mike Weir was the surgical, uh, never was the big ball striker. I wonder how Daly's backswing looks now as as uh, he gets older. But yeah, it was the big bomber against Mike Weir, and and uh, Weir wins it uh, over Daly. So. Uh, a story that made me smile. Mike Weir was always a classy guy. Obviously, the uh, Masters winner as a Canadian. A uh, special golfer, but, uh, you know, not all the years since then have been terrific for him. So good to see him back on top. He was in Edmonton years ago, and he was promoting his clothing line, had a chance to do an interview with them, and he was just a pleasure to talk to. Hey, I took this off the wall. I'm going to show it to you here. Can you see that? I sure, certainly can. Where is that now? That is Mike Weir, April 13th, 2003, Masters champion, beating Len Matice on the first playoff hole to become the first Canadian to win a major. There you go. I just, uh, like I said, I that's a, and I've got his scorecard there and everything, and I can't remember where I got this picture, but it's uh, I, I'm proudly hanging it on the wall, so thought with Mike's big win, I would be more than happy to take it down just to show you and talk about it, although sure. people can't see it. But Okay, before we wrap things up, once again, big thank you to Brent McIntosh and everybody at the McIntosh Group for, for backing us and being a huge sponsor. Once again, it's a great time with interest rates so low to get a hold of them if you're thinking of buying or selling your home. We don't know how long interest rates are going to stay like this. The Bank of Canada in the last week or so, hinting that maybe they're going to push interest rates up a little bit. So now's a good time to think about it. And don't hesitate to give Brent or anybody a call at their business. It's 780-464-0075. Or you can reach out to them at macintoshgroup.ca. They'd love to hear from you. 
Okay, how can you get a hold of us? It's real simple. Our email address is theoutsiders at shaw.ca. You can also check us out on Twitter. The handle's quite simple. It's at Outsiders2020. We're, we're gaining more uh, followers all the time. I love it. The other thing, too, make sure you tell your friends or you send or retweet out our RSS feed to, uh, to all your buddies, and that way they can follow us on their favorite ear candy sites like Apple, Google, Spotify, Pocket Casts. You know, you know where to find them. The other thing, too, we're also on YouTube. And uh, while this is an audio podcast, not a video one, you can follow along on our YouTube channel. It's uh, it's pretty simple. The other thing, too, we're getting a lot of people reaching out to us on YouTube. They're sending us emails, and uh, we try to get back to everybody as quickly as we possibly can. So your support is greatly appreciated. We'd be thrilled to talk to any potential advertisers and partners, and we're trying to make this thing bigger and better it's not hard when you get guys like Ken Hitchcock on your podcast like today. He was fantastic. But the growth over the past couple of months has been noticeable. And once again, keep retweeting to all of your friends our podcast, and that just makes it get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's it, Robin. Fun show today, huh? Absolutely. Good time, man. All right, great. We'll, uh, we'll chat with you next week, and thanks for tuning in, everybody. <laughs>